Um, we sang what might be one of my favorite holiday songs this morning, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, and um, what a joy it is to sing that on this side of the cross, on this side of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And, and has that song not been more fitting to our hearts or my heart even after the events of the last 48 hours? Um, if you've watched the news at all and the tragedy that's unfolded up in Connecticut, um, O come, O come, Emmanuel, God with us, uh, finish this whole thing. Come and, and finally finish what you've started. Uh, make right what has been wrong. Evil is real. Tragedy is real. Uh, but greater still is the promise of God. Uh, and so we sing this morning, O come, O come, Emmanuel, come and, and finish this. Uh, we can sing it with excitement. Uh, we can sing it with anticipation. We can sing it with great and in a sense even joyful longing. Uh, but how different was that sentiment for God's people, Israel, in the Old Testament? Uh, oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel. Oh, come, God, be with us. I'm not sure they sang that, if they sang that, with the same type of anticipation and hope and, and joy that you and I get to sing that with on this side of what God's done in history. O come, O come, God, holy, righteous, sovereign, creator, deliverer, dwell with us. And you know the story as we've been going through the beginning of the story in Genesis and Exodus. When God comes near, his people flee, his people fear. The holiness of God and the righteousness of God and the glory of God, even descending upon a mountain, caused a holy fear in God's people. So much so they looked at Moses, if you remember, and said, you go talk to him. You, you go close to him. I'm not sure I want to get near this holy and righteous God. Oh, come, oh, come, God, with us. I'm not sure it sounded the same in the life of Israel because they were acutely aware of the question that we've been looking at for the last few weeks. How can an infinitely holy and righteous God dwell amongst such a pervasively sinful people? I mean, that was the concern on the hearts of Israel. When God, after redeeming them from slavery in Egypt, rescuing them from Egypt and delivering them out to the land that he was gonna take them to, when God showed up to them on the mountain and said, I'm going to dwell with you. Not only have I made you, not only have you disregarded me, but yet I've rescued you. And not only am I gonna be near you, now I wanna come dwell amongst you. How in the world is a holy and righteous God going to dwell amidst such a pervasively sinful people? And so for the last few weeks in our Advent or Adventicus season uh, that we've been talking about, we have been looking at God's blueprints for how he's going to do that exact thing. How he in his holiness and glory and righteousness is going to dwell amongst his sinful and pervasively sinful people. And what we've seen so far, and we'll continue on with even the same themes this morning, what we've seen so far in Leviticus is that the answer that God gives has huge implications, not only for Israel, but for you and I. And right where you are right now in December 2012 in the 21st century, Leviticus and the answer that God gives in this book has huge implications for you. How can you, in your sin, live in the presence and relationship with such a holy and righteous God? Everything that we've seen so far, everything that we've looked at, all of these shadows, all these blueprints, all these things that we've seen, the tabernacle, the place where the glory of God is gonna dwell, the sacrificial system, the, the priesthood that God gave his people, all of those things were designed by God to make perfectly clear God's people's greatest need, the need for atonement. Atonement, being made one with God, being made right with God, reconciled in a relationship to him. That's what we as God's people and Israel as God's people most definitely and desperately need. Why? Why do we need it? Here's what we've seen and we're gonna continue to see some of the same things this morning. Our sin is excessively pervasive. I don't even know if you can say that because of the nature of the word pervasive. Our sin is so pervasive. It's so great. The extent is so deep. Because of that, guilt is so persistent in our hearts and lives. Sin is so pervasive, guilt is exceedingly persistent. And the one thing that we've seen cultivated in the hearts of God's people through these systems, through this picture of the tabernacle, this picture of the priest, this picture of the sacrifices, is this great awareness of their sin, this great recognition of their guilt, but this, this longing 
This longing cultivated in God's people by God's design for a forgiveness that's permanent. They're aware of their sin. They can't escape their guilt. And what we, along with Israel, most desperately want is a forgiveness that's permanent. All that we've seen so far in the tabernacle and the priests and the sacrificial system all come to a head in our text this morning in Leviticus chapter 16 where God gives his people the design for what's called the day of atonement. It's the most holy day in the life of God's people in Israel. So if you've got your Bibles, open up to Leviticus chapter 16. That's where we're gonna be this morning. And all along the way, as we read through this chapter, you're gonna again see the pervasiveness of sin being exposed. You're gonna again see the persistence of guilt being a real reality for God's people, but hopefully what we'll see is God's designs for them and God's designs for us for a forgiveness that's permanent, a forgiveness from God that's permanent. And here's what I want you to do. As we read chapter 16 this morning, and we're gonna work our way through almost every single verse of it. As we read chapter 16 this morning, what I want you to do is every time we come across this word atonement, this thing that God has been communicating to his people that they need most desperate for him as a holy God to live amongst them in the midst of their sin, this need for atonement to be made right with God, every time you see that word, every time we come across it, I want you to underline it or circle it in your Bible. I just want you to make a note of it, whatever you like to do, if you like to use red or green or purple or stars or however you do what you do when you take notes in your Bible, and it's okay to take notes in your Bible. I'm gonna give, I'm gonna give you freedom for that. Some of you who have never been given freedom to do that. You can take notes in your Bible. Every time we see this word atonement, I want you to mark it. I want you to note it. Because I want you to see how prevalent the need for atonement is in this passage. So here's what we're gonna do. Leviticus chapter 16, let's work our way through. But what we're gonna do is we're gonna start towards the end of verse 29. We're gonna start in verse 29, and here's what I want you to see. I want you just to make note before we look at the actual ceremony. I want you to note a couple of things. I want you just to pay attention and make note of the tone of the ceremony. And what kind of tone did this ceremony have? What was the attitude? What was the mood? And I want you to notice the scope of the ceremony. How how extensive was this ceremony? So let's just read it, and I want you to look at those two things. Verse 29, God says, this is to be a permanent statute for you. In the seventh month, on the 10th day of the month, you are to practice self-denial and do no work, both the native and the foreigner who resides among you. Atonement will be made for you on this day to cleanse you, and you will be clean from all of your sins before the Lord. It is a Sabbath of complete rest for you, and you must practice self-denial. It's a permanent statute. So just from the outset, what you see is that this is a day of reverence and a day of humility. Whether it fell on the Sabbath day or not, God's people were to treat the day of atonement as a Sabbath day, a day of no work, a day of humility, a day where they were to practice self-denial. That's the tone of what's going on here. This isn't a celebration where people are coming with bells on, making much of things and celebrating and singing. This is, this is a humble, reverent tone and time in the life of God's people. Let's keep reading, verse 32. Let's make note of the extent of this ceremony. The priest who was anointed and ordained to serve as the high priest in the place of his father will make atonement. He will put on the linen garments, the holy garments, and purify the most holy place. He will purify the tent of meeting and the altar and will make atonement for the priests and all the people of the assembly. This is to be a permanent statute for you, to make atonement for the Israelites once a year because of all their sins. So you'll see in this ceremony, this ceremony on the day of atonement, this somber, humble time, this most holy time in in the life of God's people, there are gonna be sacrifices that need to be made for the priest, for the people of God, and for the holy places. So the people, the priests, and the police, and, and the places all have to be dealt with. The places need to be purified because throughout the year they've come in contact with sinful people. And so you're gonna see sacrifices for the priests and for the people of God and sacrifices for the purity of God's holy places. And all of this was done right there at the end as the Lord commanded Moses as the Lord had told Moses. So now look back at verse one, and let's look and see what exactly God told Moses to have Aaron and the priests do on this day. Chapter 16, verse one. We're gonna walk our way through, and as, as I remind you all the time, and if you're, you're a guest with us this morning, it's the first time you've heard me say this, as we read this, I want you to read it like a human. I want you to picture what's going on here. I want you to catch what's happening. I want you to picture the scene, picture the details. I'll try to make it as real as I can for you, but I want you to think about reading this like a human. 
Don't read it jumping for all the ideas you think I'm gonna talk about in the point. I want you just to picture it and get a sense of what's happening here. I want you to think about being an Israelite during this time and, and just imagine what was going on. So chapter 16, verse one. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two of Aaron's sons when they approached the presence of the Lord and died. If you remember, we talked about that last week. Two of Aaron's sons had just been anointed as priests and the, and the people of God and they went and they offered worship that was not authorized to God and God killed them on the spot. And the Lord said to Moses, tell your brother Aaron, and here's the point, he may not come whenever he wants into the holy place behind the veil in front of the mercy seat on the ark or else he will die. Why? because I appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. Here's how Aaron, the high priest, the only one who's going to be allowed to pass through that veil into the Holy of Holies, into the presence of my glory, here's how it's gonna happen. You can't just do it any which way you want, any time you want. I'm gonna tell you how this works, and here's how it works. Verse three, in this way Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body. He shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. So you you see right there instructions for sin offerings and, and for burnt offerings. But don't miss some of the details that God puts in here in between the instructions for these two offerings for sin. God tells Aaron, here's what you're gonna have to wear. I mean, do you remember last week we talked about the holy, beautiful, glorious robes of the high priest that God designed for him to wear to do the work that God called him to do in the midst of God's people? The beautiful, priestly garments of the high priest? God says on this day, here's what you're gonna wear. You're gonna wear the plain linen undergarment, the plain linen robe, the plain linen sash, the plain linen turban. Those are your holy garments for this day. You don't get to wear those garments that I designed for you that distinguish you from everybody else. You're gonna wear the plain linen tunic, the plain linen turban of a servant. And here's the picture, I don't want you to miss this. Here's what's happening here. Aaron and the people, in the midst of this ceremony, and Aaron having to bathe himself and clean himself and then put on these garments that are different than even the normal priestly garments that the rest of the priests had to wear. These are just plain linen garments of a servant. As the people would gather and see Aaron cleansing and then putting these, these ceremonial garments on instead of his normal robes of a high priest, they'd be reminded that in the presence of God, the one time you can enter into the presence of God, Aaron and the people are being reminded that no one, including Aaron, can have any rank in the presence of God. This is is the humility that's required to enter into the presence of God. In no way is Aaron or are the people to think that Aaron can enter into the presence of God on the basis of who he is. Aaron can have no sense that I get to come in here and do this wearing all this priestly garb and all this bling that God designed because I'm the high priest. No, 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 Aaron, you... You're simply a sinful servant, no better than anyone else. You can't presume upon anything that you think makes you a somebody. You can't presume upon any of the things that you think make you somebody special. None of that allows you to come into my presence. You have to strip yourself of all those things you think make you somebody to enter into the presence of God. There's a humility that has to occur in the life of God's people to enter into the presence of God. In the same way, real quick, you and I don't have any right to think that we can come into the presence of God and a relationship with God and think that we can have this relationship with him simply because we're accomplished. Simply because we might homeschool our kids. Simply because we might have a particular political affiliation. Simply because we might have a seminary degree simply because we might serve in the church somehow, simply because we read our Bible more than the person next to us. None of us can presume to enter into the presence of God and have this relationship with God that God has designed for his people because we think we're somebody. This is what God is communicating to Aaron and to the people. Now you've gotta lay all those things aside before you enter in here. And Aaron puts on the garments of a servant. And this is how he's gonna perform the work that God's designed for him to perform on this particular day. And here in verse six, we keep reading. You're starting to see the sin offerings that God prescribed being worked out. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself 
and he shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it might be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself. So again, before Aaron can do any of the work as a priest for the people of Israel, on behalf of the people of Israel, before he can mediate in this sacrifice or in this ceremony for the people of Israel, he had to deal with the sin in his own heart and in his own house. He again had to make sacrifices for himself. Remember, we've talked about this over and over as we looked at this. No one is immune for the pervasiveness of sin. The universality of sin is seen all over the sacrifices that God has designed for his people. And in this, I just want to encourage you, as we've talked about this a lot, Leviticus should help you. It should remind you not to, not to put too much on those who lead you. Not to consider too lofty those who lead you. And don't be tempted to exalt your leaders to a place of, I don't know, to a place that's unhealthy. We're reminded over and over again in the lives of God's people and in these ceremonies that God required that before Aaron or the priest could do anything on behalf of the people, they had to offer sacrifices for their own sin first because they're sinners, just like everybody else. Let's keep reading. Before Aaron can go in and do those sacrifices, something else has to happen. Look at verse 12. He shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small and he shall bring it inside the veil. Now picture though, you gotta really get your head around this one. And he shall bring it inside the veil and he'll put incense on the fire before the Lord and the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat so that it is over the testimony so that he does not die. Now, so before Aaron can go into the Holy of Holies through the veil to offer the blood that God has designed for him to do in this ceremony, he has to do something else. He has to take hot coals from the altar and finely ground, finely beaten sweet incense. And Jewish historians would say that the high priest would take these two things and he'd enter in through the veil between the holy place and the Holy of Holies backwards. And it's important. He'd enter in backwards and he would turn sideways. And there he would place the pan of hot coals down on the ground. And as he would go make his way back through the veil, he would put the sweet incense on it. And what would happen when he put the sweet incense on the hot coals is that smoke would begin to billow up. And he would make his way back out through the veil with his side turned, with his back to to the Holy of Holies. And he'd make his way back out to the altar where he would gather the blood. And while he was doing that, the Holy of Holies, where the tabernacle, where the Ark of the Covenant, it was, would fill up with smoke. It would just become full of smoke. And the point of this is the fact that no one can look upon or gaze upon the presence of God directly. And we've seen this in the life of Moses. And so God gave these instructions for Aaron to come and to fill the Holy of Holies where the presence of God dwelled over and above the Ark of the Tabernacle. And this was for Aaron. This was for him. So that he wouldn't die. The picture, you can't gaze directly into the presence of God like this. And so verse 14, he shall take now, he's made his way back out. Here's Aaron, he's, he's backed in, he's kind of put it down, the incense there, smoke, he's made his way back out. Now he's gonna finish up the rest of what God's called him to do. Now he's gonna take some of the blood. He's made the sacrifice from the bull, now he's gonna take the blood. And he's gonna make his way back into the Holy of Holies. Now he's gonna go back through the veil. And he's gonna sprinkle the Holy of Holies, he's gonna sprinkle the mercy seat with his finger on front of the mercy seat on the east side. And in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall go back out. So he's gonna go back out. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that's for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. So twice he comes in and back out from the holy of holies through the veil with the blood, once for himself and once for the people. And now picture this. You, you, you just, I want you to get this. I want this to be real for you. Uh, when you think about this holy of holies and Aaron doing this, you gotta think he was moving. He wasn't going as slow. He did not want to linger in the Holy of Holies. He wasn't in the Holy of Holies taking pictures to tweet to people. He was moving quick. And if you remember, all the rest of the priests, they're they're outside the veil. The ones who are helping him in the ceremony are on the other side of the veil because they can't go through. They're the ones holding the rope. Because remember, Aaron had that, that linen tunic that he was supposed to wear. That was the undergarment for his normal garb. On the bottom of it were bells. 
And every time Aaron would take a step, the priests are listening for the bells on the other side of the veil. Is he still moving? Is he doing it right? Is he making any mistakes? If he makes any mistakes and he's not moving, he falls dead in the presence of God. And those priests have to take that rope and pull him out. So Aaron's not just dilly-dallying, going into the Holy of Holies, hanging out. He's not sitting there smelling the incense with the blood, sprinkling it, just looking around the room. He's moving. He's not trying to just take his sweet time. He's trying to get in and get out because if he does anything wrong in the presence of God in the Holy of Holies, he's dead. This is a, this, you gotta just capture the, the, the anticipation and the energy behind what's going on here. The priests are sitting on the outside. I mean, I don't know if you've ever, if you were an athlete or if you've ever had to uh, make a big presentation for work and the whole thing was riding on you. I, for me, I remember just times when big games would come down to penalty shootouts and I always took the fifth shot. So you're the last guy to take the shot. You make it, you win, you miss it, quite possibly you're gonna lose. And it all comes down to you. And you remember what your teammates would always try to do to you. Like they always try to figure out what helps you calm down, what, what helps you focus, what encourages you, what do you do if you make the big presentation? How do you, how do you work around the guy? Do you encourage him? Do you, do you leave him alone? Do you give him silence? What do you do? This is what's going on in the life of the priests. This is the high holy day. Aaron's gonna go into the holy of holies in the presence of God. He does anything wrong, he's going to die. Is God gonna accept the sacrifices for the people's sins? The rest of the priests are sitting out there, what do we do? How do you encourage Aaron on this day? I mean, did, did he get a good night's sleep? Is he nervous? Does he remember exactly what he's supposed to do? Are they cheering? Are they, are they smacking him? Are they, are they, what are they doing? This is what's going on. This is the big day. This is the big moment. And Aaron's going on with the blood of these sacrifices into the presence of God. One of the things we, we haven't addressed directly as we've been talking about the book of Leviticus, and some of you have emailed me and asked me these questions, and why is the blood so pervasive, and why are there so many distinct things that have to happen with the blood, and why is the blood so important in all these sacrifices, and why do they have to do all this crazy stuff? Well, let me just kind of give you an insight to this, and, and hopefully it'll help make sense of all that we've talked about, but then also what's coming forward in the rest of this ceremony. In Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11, this is what God says. He says, for the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have appointed it to you to make atonement on the altar for your lives, since it is the lifeblood that makes atonement. Now, another translation that I, I love to read, especially in these kinds of stories, uh, it's called the New Living Translation, it, it, it says it this way. It says, for the life of the body is in the blood. I've given you the blood on the altar to purify you, making you right with the Lord. It's the blood given in exchange for a life that makes purification possible. So the big deal about the blood is the fact the blood represents life. And the picture is this, if, if sin is so severe and so dangerous that it deserves death and God is so holy for God's holiness and, and for God's justice to reign, then his response to sin must always be death. And here's the thing, as we've gone through this book and talked about this and seen this over and over and over again, one thing that's come back pretty often from people in the, as you're processing it is that seems kind of severe. Sin incurs death. It seems a bit severe. The problem, just as simply as I can put it, the, the problem is that for the most of us, especially myself, it, more times than I care to admit, when we think about sin, we tend to have a very man-centered view of sin. And the reality of it is the severity of sin is determined by the one who sinned against. I mean, think about the outrage you feel watching the news for the last 48 hours. The tragedy that 28 people were murdered ruthlessly, but the fact that 20 of them were kids? And the severity of the sin, the severity of our outrage is directly related to the one who sinned against. God is infinitely honorable, which makes us in our sin infinitely guilty of dishonor. Infinitely guilty of dishonor and infinitely deserving of eternal death. So as we read through Leviticus, and as you're reading through it and you're reading this week, every time you see blood in the book of Leviticus, you see a picture of a sacrifice that shows that the payment for sin has been made. A sacrifice who experiences death in the place of a sinner. This is why the blood is so important. 
so here's the picture. God sees the sins of Israel. God in his glory is sitting and hovering and ruling over the mercy seat, over the Ark of the Covenant. Inside the Ark of the Covenant is the law of God. God is there. He sees his law. He sees his law broken by his people. He sees his people infinitely guilty of dishonor. And instead of them dying as a result of their sins, God sees the blood of a sacrifice on the mercy seat. God was satisfied by the sacrifice of a substitute in the place of his people. And the animal, the bull, and the goat are portrayed or are seen as dying instead of the people. And in this way, by doing this, God is declaring that he is both just in relation to sin, that it deserves death, and at the same time gracious towards sinners, those who have committed the transgression. This is why the blood is so important and why you'll never see any of these sacrifices for sin occurring without the blood being done, something done particular with the blood. But we gotta keep going. So he makes the offerings for sin and then in verses 16 through 19, the holy place had to be purified. You can just see it in verse 16. It says, now he shall make atonement for the holy place. Because, here's why. Why do you have to make atonement for the holy place? And for the altar, you'll see in just a minute the holy things. Because of the uncleanliness of the people of Israel. And because of the transgressions, all of their sins. Because those things, the holy place and the altar, have come in contact with the sinful priests and a sinful people. And so they need to be purified and cleansed as well. It could take a whole week to just talk about this pervasive, defiling nature of sin. But we've got to keep going. So you have the offerings for sin. The sin offerings have been made. Now comes the twist on the Day of Atonement. Now comes, here's what makes it a bit distinct amidst all the sacrifices and the ceremonies that God gives his people. Verse 20. When he has finished purifying the most holy place, the tent of meeting in the altar, he is to present the live male goat. And Aaron will lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the Israelites' wrongdoings and rebellious acts, all of their sins. Remember, we talked about this in the past, the laying on of hands onto this sacrifice is symbolic of the transfer of guilt. So the guilt of the people is being placed symbolically onto the head and to the back of this hairy goat sitting there in the tabernacle. He is to put on the goat's head and send it away into the wilderness by the man appointed for the task, verse 22. And the goat will carry, it, will goat will carry on it all the wrongdoings into a desolate land and he will release it there. So one goat dies and his blood is sprinkled on the mercy seat. One goat lives but is sent out for Azazel. What in the world is Azazel? Because I know you've been sitting there waiting since I read that. What in the world is Azazel? Centuries, people have been giving interpretations and opinions of what Azazel really is. And the traditional understanding of Azazel is usually always the best. And the traditional understanding takes into the place the context of the story, what's going on and what's being done. And it's simply this, Azazel is a compound Hebrew word. It takes the word for goat and the word for to depart and puts them together, Azazel. This is the goat that departs. This is the goat that escapes death. This is the escape goat. This is where we get our term for scapegoat. On this goat, the guilt of the people for their sin, the guilt of the people is going to be transferred onto this goat and this goat is gonna carry the guilt of the people and take the guilt of the people and they'll be sent out away from the people forever. This is the escape goat, the one that escaped death. This is the scapegoat, the one that bears the guilt and condemnation for the people because of their sins. Totally removed, never to return again. The first goat dies so that the sins of the people could be forgiven. The second goat is sent out, don't miss this, so that the guilt and condemnation for the sins of the people will be forgotten. One dies, so they'd be forgiven. The other sent out, that it will be forgotten. It's a great picture. Again, just close your eyes if you have to see it. Put yourself right there in the place of the Israelites during this ceremony. High priest puts his hand on this goat and confesses the sins of Israel. I would love to read what that might have sounded like. We don't know exactly, but the historians have great prayers from the high priest, and I wish I could read them to you, but he would put his hands on the head of that goat, and he would confess the sins of the people, and that goat with its handler would be taken out from the camp, through the camp, out to the wilderness, and as it would go, you would look at that goat and you would see your sin. You would see your, your pornography. You would see your lies. You would see your treason. You would see your deceit. You would see your anger. You would see your hatred. You'd see everything right there on that goat making its way out. You'd be standing there with the people watching this goat, getting a view of it. Look, it's still in the court. 
It's making its way through the court. Now it's making its way through the people. It's going through the camp. Look, has it made it past Judah yet? Has it made it past Judah? It's, it's past Judah. It's on the other side of the camp. Can you see it? Can you still see it? Until finally it's gone. It's gone. Just imagine what that must have been like. It was so literal, right there in front of their eyes, they could see their guilt, they could see their shame, they could see their condemnation being carried on the back of this coat away from them, out of their presence, never ever to return again. To really catch this, to really feel what this must have been like for the Israelites, you've gotta understand that there were, there were five basic kind of concentric circles of holiness in the life of, of God's people, and you really see it in Leviticus, but you had the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, right there in the middle of the tabernacle. That's the holiest place. And then you actually had the tabernacle itself, the, the structure that God had given. That's kind of the next concentric circle. Then the next concentric circle is the camp, the place where all the people lived. And from there you moved to outside the camp. This is where the, the, the remains of the sacrifices would be taken to be burned. You take them outside the camp to be burned. And then beyond the camp you had the wilderness. And it went from holy of holies to the wilderness. And here on this one day, this one time a year, the high priest would go into the holiest place to deal with the sins of God's people and God's people would watch their sin literally being led from the holy of holies all the way out to the wilderness. And what God is saying is that as far as it is in your mind and and literally from the holiest place to the most unholy place as far as the wilderness goes, that's how far your sins have gone. One time, they'd watch the high priest literally lead their sin away from the Holy of Holies out to the wilderness. As far as it is from that place to the wilderness, that's how far God has removed your sin from you, never to be seen again. Day of Atonement. The pervasiveness of sin is exposed again because you've got to do it, and it's dealt with. The persistence of this sin is being dealt with. The penalty is paid for. The guilt is removed. The sin is forgiven. The sin is forgotten. All of it by the grace of God. And this is what is happening on this high and holy day in the life of God's people, this day of atonement. But here's the thing. Sin and guilt They are persistent little buggers. They're very persistent. Atonement would be made, but then in the very next moment, it didn't take people five minutes. The very next moment, the very next week, they're sinning again. And so in the next year, atonement needs to be made again. And the next year, and the next year, and the next year, and on and on and on it went. Atonement needed to be made. And you see it there in the end in verse 29 through 34. Twice God tells Moses that this day of atonement, the day when the people of Israel's sins are dealt with, forgiven, and forgotten, has got to occur every year. This is to be a permanent statute for you, God said, verse 34. Why? To make atonement for the Israelites once a year. Why? Because of all their sins. And just as much as this ceremony was a living breathing picture of God's grace towards his people and the effect of this ceremony served to remind the people of their sin. Year after year, they remembered the persistence of their sin and the persistence of their guilt. And all of this, day after day, year after year, generation after generation, served God's purposes to cultivate in God's people a longing for a permanent forgiveness a longing for a permanent forgiveness. The day of atonement and all of its glory and all that it said and all that it demonstrated not only of their sin and not only of their need but of God's grace towards his people and all of its glory, still, it still didn't do the job of bringing a permanent forgiveness in the lives of God's people. And generation after generation, God's people longed for a permanent, a permanent forgiveness before we go any further, you just have to stop and, and be honest with this text and be, and be honestly, really honest with each other because I honestly believe, I said that three times and I honestly, I, I, I really think 
that many of us in this room are longing for the same thing. We're desperately longing for a permanent forgiveness. And I'm talking to those in here in this room who call themselves Christians. They're desperately longing still for a permanent forgiveness. You are acutely aware of your sin. Acutely aware of the pervasiveness of your sin. You know your thoughts, you know your motivations, you know your heart, you know your desires, and because of that, you are plagued, plagued by guilt. You you are plagued with the persistence of guilt. Acutely aware of the pervasiveness of your sin, plagued with the persistence of guilt. And when I'm talking about guilt, I'm talking about this nagging and lingering feeling that becomes many times, and for many of you, overwhelming. An overwhelming sense of helplessness and hopelessness because of your sin and your failings. And here's the crazy thing, even for those who call themselves Christians, for you and for I, and I'm right here with you, I understand this, we can feel this pervasive guilt for almost anything. We can begin drowning in this feeling, in this sense of overwhelming hopelessness because of simple unmet spiritual expectations we put on ourselves. I don't know how many times I've talked to people that are just drowning in this guilt because they don't feel the kind of joy they think they're supposed to feel in the gospel. And now they're plagued with guilt because of it. Racked with guilt because God gave you an opportunity to communicate the gospel with somebody and you didn't take it. Racked with guilt plagued with this sense of hopelessness and helplessness because you did try to communicate the gospel, but you think you fumbled and it didn't go so well. Guilt for unmet spiritual expectations you put on yourself. We can feel guilty about almost anything. Here's the thing. Persistent guilt, this lingering, nagging sense of guilt, it will actually have a terribly unhealthy level of control over how we actually live. It's not just this thing that's in there. It actually begins to take over control. It begins to shape our attitudes, begins to shape our motivations. It, just like that plant. You ever see Little Shop of Horrors? You ever seen that? And that plant, you begin to feed it and you just gotta keep feeding it. It's never enough. Feed me, see more. Feed me, see more. More and more and more. This overwhelming, this nagging, niggling guilt that we begin to be plagued with and live in is like that plant. We just spend so much of our time trying to deal with it and appease it. I mean, how can I deal with this guilt? What do I need to do to deal with this guilt? All of a sudden, this guilt begins to shape what we do and how we do it because our motivations are trying to deal with this guilt, trying to make sense of it, trying to rid ourselves of it, trying to cleanse ourselves of it. And here's the thing, nothing we ever do can completely fix it. Nothing we ever try can can, can completely remove this persistent sense of guilt. And even worse, this persistent guilt that we tend to live in, that Christians, we tend to live in, I don't know if you're aware of it or not, but this persistent guilt in your life actually denies the reality of the gospel. It actually says that the good news of the gospel that we talk so often about, that we say our lives are centered on, isn't actually good enough. What's been done isn't good enough. There's still this thing I've got to deal with. And not only does it deny the gospel, it actually competes with the gospel. I mean, I don't know which one is actually worse. Instead of being led by the gospel, instead of being driven by the grace of God that we've received in the gospel and our our wants, our desires, our motivations coming out of the fact of who God is and what he's done for us, now we're led by a desire to try to do whatever we can do to make ourselves feel better about ourselves. Now what I need to do and why I do what I do is in an instant to appease this guilt, to make myself feel better. And when we do that and wallow in our persistent sense of guilt, which is what we do, we wallow in it, we make much of it, we end up making much more of our guilt and sin than we do of the work of Christ. This is what we are doing with this persistent guilt that we allow to live and linger in our hearts. And here's the thing, if we don't deal with this persistent guilt, if we don't deal with it appropriately, it will extinguish in our hearts any sense of assurance, and it will deplete from our hearts any ounce of joy that we may have. And not only will it extinguish assurance and deplete joy, scientists have even now begun to agree with us and, believe, and agree with the scriptures what we already knew from Psalm 32. This persistent level of guilt in your life that you allow to get there and become overwhelming will actually have negative effect on your own body. 
it'll begin to rot you and hurt you from the inside out. And all of our efforts, everything that we do to try to deal with this guilt, to deal with this sense of guilt, this persistent, nagging guilt, every attempt to deflect it, every attempt to deny it, every attempt to minimize it, every attempt to lie about it, every attempt to shift it onto something else, all of them, everything that we do cannot stand up next to what God has done for his people to provide a permanent forgiveness. A permanent forgiveness to deal, to deal with our persistently guilty conscience. Watch what God was showing his people in Leviticus 16. Watch what we see casting that shadow back. Just like the tabernacle, just like the priesthood, just like the other sacrifices that we've talked about, this day of atonement, this ceremony was simply a shadow cast back over the life of God's people, pointing them to a greater reality that was to come. The greater reality of what God has finally done for his people in the life, death, resurrection, and reign of his son, Jesus. Jesus was casting this shadow back on this day of atonement. Watch this. And let's see if this can't help us this morning. Hebrews chapter 10, verse one. This is actually talking about the day of atonement and the sacrificial system. And here's what it says. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of its realities, remember we talked about that, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered. Make sense? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. Here's the point. But in these sacrifices, year after year in the Day of Atonement, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Sin is pervasive. Guilt remained persistent every single year. But God's forgiveness is not only greater, but it's permanent. Watch this. Flip back Hebrews chapter nine. Verse 11 says this. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent not made with hands that is not of his creation, tabernacle like we talked about, he entered once for all into the holy places. Remember how the priest had to go into the holy place this one time a year, how, the, how Aaron had to go in, stripping himself of what made him who he was, the glorious garments of the high priest, putting on the humble clothes of a servant to go into the presence of God. Remember what Paul said about Jesus? Though he didn't consider equality with God as something to be grasped, he humbled himself and he took on the form of a servant. He took on the form of a servant. Thou who was rich beyond all measure, for our sakes, he became poor. Jesus took on the form, the clothes of a humble servant and entering into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood. The priest had to offer the bull's blood for his own sins before he could even begin to work on the people of God's sins. Not so with Jesus, we talked about this last week. He had no sin in him that needed to be atoned for and so he goes in on our behalf, not with the blood of another sacrifice, but with his own blood. Thus, Hebrews says, securing an eternal, eternal, permanent, eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? God sees the sin in our lives and the payment for sin must be what? death. He sees the sin in our lives and yet when we trust in the person and work of Jesus and the blood of Christ is in a sense sprinkled over our hearts, when God sees the sin in our lives, instead of pouring out his wrath upon us for our sins, instead of us incurring the death that we deserve, he sees the the blood of his son sprinkled on our hearts on our behalf and he's satisfied with the sacrifice of his son in our place. This is what you see going on here in Jesus in the reflection of the day of atonement and the payment for our sin, our just deserving of the wrath of God, death has been poured out and exhausted fully in his own son in our place and his blood now covers us from the wrath of God that we justly deserve because of our sins. And this sacrifice of Jesus, think about the blood of that bull and the blood of that goat, this sacrifice that was made for our sins, God says is permanent, it's eternal. It never again has to be repeated. 
It's a sacrifice that would last forever. Not only the sacrifice, but the effects of the sacrifice are eternal. Look back over to Hebrews 10. I'm gonna make sense of this for you. Hebrews 10 verse 11. I'm gonna get really excited in a minute. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Remember, sitting down symbolizes that being complete. It's being done. And now he's waiting for that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time. Say, for all time. Permanently, eternally, all time, those who are being sanctified. It's permanent. It's permanent. So much so that verse 17 in Hebrews chapter 10 says this. God says, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. For where there is forgiveness of these, there's no longer any offering for sin. Now, here's the thing. Just picture this. Let's try to make it real for you as much as I can. Remember that second goat? That second goat that Aaron came back out, he laid his hands on, and the, the guilt of the people, the condemnation of the people was symbolically transferred onto that goat, and he was taken out into the wilderness. Imagine in Jesus... Imagine that moment before his crucifixion and imagine, in a sense, all of the hands of God's people for all time being laid onto Jesus and the sins being confessed and the guilt and the shame and the condemnation being transferred onto the head and onto the back and onto the shoulders of Jesus. And Jesus in our place carried that sin, that shame, that condemnation outside of the camp. And outside of the camp bearing your guilt and my guilt and your shame and my shame, he then offered up his body as a living sacrifice for our sin, for your sin, your shame, your lust, your deceit, carried outside the camp, crucified, forgiven, and now forgotten. And no matter how dark or how dirty your past or even your present is, when your sins have been placed onto the person of Jesus Christ, when you have laid your hands in a sense on him and have transferred the reality of your sin and your shame and your guilt onto him, they are removed from the presence of God as far as the east is from the west, as far as the holy of holies is from the wilderness, never to be remembered again, never to be counted against you again, forgiven and completely and permanently forgotten. This is the reality of what God has fulfilled in Christ on the day of atonement. And think about that one thing in your life, if you could go back and redo it. I mean, that one moment, that, that one thing, if you gotta redo, you would want to be taken away. you want to forget about. You would not want to deal with. You need to realize this. That thing, that moment, that sin, whatever it is, before the eyes of God, if you have placed your faith in the person and work of his son, in the eyes of almighty, holy, righteous God of the universe, it's already gone. It's already gone. Your guilt is gone. So great is that that it caused Paul in writing to the church in Rome to get to chapter eight and go, there is therefore now because of this, no what? No condemnation for those who are in Christ. Why? For the law of the spirit of life has done what no law could ever do on this earth for it has set you free. It has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. This is a reality. Your debt is paid. Your debt is paid. It's already been paid. I, I don't know how much debt you've incurred at Christmas time, but you know what it feels like to be in debt. It's a painful thing to always feel like you owe something that you can never pay back, and no matter how hard you try, and no matter how much you do, you can never get out of that hole. It's like an anchor chain just hanging around your neck and on your back, and what God said is that in this sacrifice, in what he's done in Christ, your debt has been paid. It is done. And so now when Satan wants to put those chains back on your back and back around your neck and drag you down and have you carry the weight of your past and carry the weight of your shame of your present and remind you of what you will even do in the future, so many of you still carry around guilt from 20 years ago. Don't do it anymore. Don't do it anymore. It's not your guilt to carry. It's already been 
dealt with. You are free. Your guilt is gone. Do you get this? Your guilt is gone. And before God, you are spotless. You are forgiven. That sin is forgotten. And you are clean because the sacrifice of another has been credited to you in your place. This is the glory of what God has fulfilled on this day of atonement. Forgiven, forgotten, conscience clean. That's what Hebrews said in chapter nine. Conscience clean. Do you know what that means? Now you can live like it's true. You wanna know what a clean conscience does with this? It lives as though these things are true. Now you can not only be forgotten, not only can you realize your sins are, are forgiven, but now you can live like that. And that will absolutely change you. So here's the good news, the day of atonement, where we are on this side of the cross. Let me finish here. Here's the good news. Our scapegoat, our scapegoat, he's alive. He went into the wilderness bearing our sin and bearing our shame, and he beat it. He went into the wilderness loaded down with our sin and he crushed it. He took our penalty for our sin and he paid it in full. Our scapegoat went into the wilderness and went toe to toe with the power of the enemy and he conquered him. Our scapegoat is alive. He has come back into the camp not to be feared He has come back into the camp scarred, but there's no sin on him. Completely sinless. All has been made right. All that's left is how we respond. All that's left to this is how we respond. Will we strip ourselves of our honor and our pretension and all that we think we are, what makes us a somebody, and will we come to Jesus? No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. And as he stands now, our scapegoat in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me. For I'm his, he's mine. All bought, what? With the precious blood of Christ. Your sin is far more pervasive than you can imagine. Your guilt plagues you, plagues you with relentless persistence. But God's forgiveness is even greater yet. God's forgiveness is complete and comprehensive and it's permanent. We have all that we need to be right with God, for atonement to have been accomplished. The question now is will we receive Jesus' sacrifice for our sins on our behalf? Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your work, your completion of your work of atonement. You've shown us what we need. You've shown us what you've supplied. Now, God, I ask by your spirit, you empower us to place our hands on the head of your son, transfer our guilt, turn from our sin, and receive the forgiveness, the cleansing, the assurance that only comes from you. We ask this, Lord, for your namesake, for your glory and our joy. Amen.